This morning, I'd like to conclude our sermon series, Music That Changed the World. Over the last two weeks, we've been having some fun looking at different kinds of music. Music that we may not be used to be hearing in a church setting or in a worship setting, and yet nonetheless, music that has changed our world with a message of love, a message of grace. It was two weeks ago that Dr. Long led us as we looked at the song Africa by Toto. And last week, Reverend Lambert led us as we looked at the song Time in a Bottle by Jim Croce. Two songs that we may not associate usually with church, and yet as we have seen, songs that do bring a gospel message, a message of love for all people. Well, this morning I want to conclude this sermon series by going back a couple of centuries and shifting gears a little bit, looking at music that we do often associate with church and with worship services, and that's the hymns of Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, you may know, is considered one of the founders of Methodism, along with his brother John. Now, John usually gets more of the credit as the leader of the Methodist movement. He was the one that was typically out preaching and traveling around. He was the one more often that was helping to lead the movement and get the people organized. But Charles had a profound impact on the Methodist movement as well, primarily because of his hymn writing. He was a prolific hymn writer. Charles was born as the 18th of 19 children in the Wesley family to Samuel and Susanna. 18 of 19 children. Having a one-year-old at home right now, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around 19 children. Samuel and Susanna Wesley, they had 19 children, and Charles grew up from an early age, and he loved to write. He loved poetry. He loved hymns. He certainly was influenced by his father and his oldest brother, Samuel Wesley Sr. and Samuel Wesley Jr., both of whom were hymn writers. He started from an early age learning the, the classic poems, learning to write. As he grew older, he continued to learn and to grow. Eventually, he would go on to school with his brother John at Christ Church at Oxford College. The two of them would go there to get their education. And, and while they were there, there, John and Charles started looking around at the, the Church of England and what was going on at that time. Now, their father, Samuel Wesley Sr., had been a priest in the Church of England. So they had grown up in the church all their lives. They had been a part of the Anglican church. But as they looked around at what was going on, they really felt that there was a, a lack of zeal within the church. That it was just sort of this empty, hollow religion without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they decided that they wanted to set about to bring about this spiritual reform, this spiritual revival within the church. They wanted to bring about a, a commitment to personal piety and devotion practices. And so that's what they set out to do while they were there at Oxford. They started getting together with a group of their friends. And every day they would get together and they would study and try to grow in their faith. They called themselves the Holy Club. Well, every day the Holy Club would meet at the same time. They would meet in the same place. And during their meetings, they would do the exact same things every single time. They were so methodical about everything that they did that the other students at Oxford started to make fun of them and say, Hey, look. There go the Methodists. And that's how we got our name. They claimed it and they said, yes, we are methodical about how we grow in our faith. We are methodical about our intentions to worship God and to be able to be open to the Holy Spirit. Well, John and Charles continued this revival movement there at Oxford. But after they graduated, they had an opportunity to, to travel over here to America, to come on a missionary journey to Georgia. 
their mission was twofold. One, it was to come and help evangelize the Native Americans in Georgia. And two, it was to help minister to the colonists who were here. So they came to Georgia and they were here for just a short time. They weren't here very many years before they quickly realized that their mission was a complete failure. They failed to evangelize the Native Americans. They failed in their relationships and their ministry to the colonists. They were run out of town and put back on a ship heading back to London in total disgrace. They felt like they had failed their mission. They had failed in their ministry. They started to question the calling that God had placed upon their lives and whether they were doing the right thing. They started to question their own faith and doubt God's love for them. When they got back to England, it was a man by the name of Peter Bowler who became a mentor for them. Peter Bowler started to encourage them in their faith, tried to help them get back into to Bible study and, and growing in their faith. And it was under the, the leadership, under the mentorship and guidance of Peter Bowler that Charles Wesley went to a Bible study one night. And that night, it was on May the 21st of 1738. And they were reading Martin Luther's commentary on the letter to the Galatians. And that night, Charles Wesley would come home and he would write in his journal and he would say, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I knew that by faith I stood. Through all of the failures and the doubts and the questions that he had been through, he came to be reminded of that message of God's love for him, that it wasn't based on his worthiness or whether he had earned it, that God's love, God's grace is given freely to us all. Now, if that story sounds familiar to you, if you've been around Methodism for a while, it may sound familiar because it's very similar to John Wesley's conversion experience. Charles had his conversion May the 21st, 1738. Well, it was John that had his conversion experience on May the 24th of 1738, just three days later. You may remember that it was John who was at a Bible study on Aldersgate Street in London one night, and they were reading Martin Luther's commentary on the letter to the Romans. And that night, John Wesley would come home and he would write in his journal that while they were reading, that he felt that his heart was strangely warmed, that he did trust in Christ, Christ alone for his salvation. And he believed that God loved even him. For John and Charles, after all that they had been through, their doubts and their questions, their failures and their fears, they came to be reminded that God's love was still for them. That God's grace is a free gift given to us all. And it's not based on our worthiness. It's based on the fact that we are all children of God. It was from that point forward that those two brothers would go on to start this Methodist movement with this new understanding, this new experience of God's grace in their lives, this new commitment of God's love for everybody that would lead them to go out to start this Methodist movement, traveling all over the countryside, spreading the good news of God's grace for all wherever they went. Over the years, John would become known more as the leader of the Methodist movement. He did do more of the preaching, the teaching, and the leading, but Charles certainly had his impact felt he preached a good number of sermons as well, but his impact probably 
may have even gone farther than John's impact beyond the boundaries of Methodism because of all the hymns that he wrote. The hymns that are now being sung in churches of all different denominations all around the world. Charles Wesley would go on to write more than 9,000 hymns and poems in his lifetime. 9,000. That's a staggering number. To put that into perspective, if you took all of the lines of poetry and hymns that Charles Wesley wrote, it would require writing more than 10 lines of poetry every single day for 50 years to write as much as he did. That's not counting all of his sermons and his journals and his letters and everything else that he wrote. Just the hymns and the poems, 10 lines a day for 50 years without a break. It's staggering what a prolific writer Charles Wesley was. Some of the hymns that he wrote, hymns that we still sing today, hymns that you may be familiar with even if you didn't realize that Charles Wesley was the one that wrote them. Those hymns would include things like, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hark the herald angels sing. Charles Wesley would write hymns like, Rejoice the Lord is King. Jesus, lover of my soul. O come thou traveler unknown. There was a contemporary of Charles Wesley's living about the same time that he was in England. A man by the name of Isaac Watts. You may recognize that name. Isaac Watts was known as the father of English hymn writing. He would write hymns like Joy to the World, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Those were all written by Isaac Watts. But Isaac Watts was speaking about Charles Wesley one time, and he said, I would trade everything that I ever wrote if I could have just written that one hymn, O Come Thou Traveler Unknown. To have such admiration and respect for Charles Wesley and his ability to write hymns, to say, I would give up it all if I could have just written that one hymn. Well, Charles did have a profound impact on the church, not just Methodism, but his impact stretched beyond all around the world with all the incredible hymns that he wrote. With more than 9,000 hymns, there is so much to go back and look at and to see. But today I wanted to focus on just one of those hymns, and that's the hymn, O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. It's a hymn that has had a prominent place within Methodism for centuries now. Since 1780, this hymn has been the very first hymn in every Methodist hymn book. When you open up any Methodist hymnal through the years, going all the way back to 1780, the very first hymn that you'll find is O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Now, whenever we find it in our hymn books today, depending on which hymn book you're looking in, you might find four or five, maybe even seven verses of that hymn. When Charles originally wrote the hymn, he wrote 18 verses. So I thought for our closing hymn today, we would sing all 18 verses. <laughs> Before you start heading for the exits, I'm just teasing. Now, he wrote 18 verses of over a thousand tongues to sing. We usually sing just a few of those. But in just a minute ago when the choir was singing it, you may have noticed that there were some hymns in there that even if you know this hymn, you may not have been familiar with. And these were some of the, the verses that Charles Wesley originally wrote in those 18 verses. One of those is the verse that I want us to focus on today. And it's the verse that says, Murderers and all ye hellish crew, ye sons of lust and pride, believe the Savior died for you, 
for me, the Savior died. Now that verse can be a little bit jarring for us, and it probably should be. This isn't a verse that typically makes it into our hymnal. This isn't a verse of singing about murderers and hellish crew that we typically sing on a regular basis. No, this isn't a verse that I usually sing as a lullaby to Lucy when I put her to bed at night. But it is one of the originals that Charles Wesley wrote. In fact, as I was thinking about this verse, I thought, you know, we could probably spend an entire sermon just on the murderers and the hellish crew, the sons of lust and pride. You know, I decided I'm going to leave that sermon for Dr. Long to preach whenever he gets back in the pulpit. But I do want to address just for a moment that language because it is important to put it into context. We have to understand that that language is more common back in Charles Wesley's day in 18th century England than it is for us today. It was more often used back then. But it was also a common theme of Charles Wesley that, that in his hymn writing, he would have these dramatic contrasting images in order to show the depths of God's love. He would talk about the murderers and the hellish crew in order to talk about the power of God's light and the gift of God's grace for all people. Now, when he used phrases like this, he wasn't using it in a condemning or judgmental kind of way. Now, in the verse right before this, if you go back and read the original hymn, he talked about those who had crimes even as great as his own. See, Charles knew what it meant to fail in life. He knew the mistakes that he had made. And he understood the depths of his conversion experience, the power of experiencing God's love and God's grace even for him. So he wasn't saying this in a judgmental or condemning kind of way. He was simply trying to show this is the power of God's love. That regardless of your past or what you may have done or not done, God still loves you. For you, the Savior died. Believe, for me, the Savior died. It was a statement about the power of God's grace. That's really the statement that our scripture lesson was making this morning in this letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4. This actually is the scripture verse that John Wesley would use when he preached a sermon in 1738 called Salvation by Faith. You remember 1738, the year of their conversion experiences, May 21st and May 24th, 1738. It was shortly after they had those conversion experiences that John was invited to come back to Oxford to preach at the church service there. And when he came back to preach, he wanted to use this as an opportunity to roll out this new theology based on his experience of his conversion, his experience of God's grace for him. It seems that there were some people in the time, at the time in the church who were preaching this message that said that God's grace was for those who had earned it, that you had to be worthy of God's love. On the other hand, it seemed that there were others who were preaching a message that said, no, God's love is only for those who are the elect, those who God predetermined before the beginning of creation to save. It's only for a select group of people. And John came to preach this sermon, and he used this text from Ephesians to say, it's not just for those who are worthy. God's grace isn't just for a certain group of people. It is by faith through God's grace that we are saved. Not by our works, lest any man should boast. It's not about how worthy we are of being loved. 
God's grace is a free gift given to us all. And it is our faith, our trust in that love that begins to set us free to live the abundant life that God has for us. That's the message that we still hear today. That was the message that John Wesley wanted us to all understand. And that's the message that Charles Wesley was bringing in this hymn. That regardless of our past, regardless of the things that we have done or the things that we have failed to do, regardless of how worthy we think we are or we think anybody else is, believe. For you, the Savior died. For me, the Savior died. This morning, as we conclude this sermon series, I want us to look at these two lines of that verse from Charles Wesley. These two statements that he made back in 1739 that he still makes to us today. First, Believe, the Savior died for you. The you that Charles Wesley was using, it was not an individual that he was speaking to. It was not a singular person that he was talking about. This was the plural you. It was the universal statement that God's love is for all people. That Christ came for us all. In Oklahoma, we might say the plural y'all here. Believe the Savior died for you all. It wasn't an individual. It was a statement about the universal nature of God's love for us all. It was a recognition that we are all God's children, regardless of our past or where we come from or what we believe or the doubts or the questions or the failures that we have had. God's love is for us all. When we come to recognize that God's love is for us all, that we are all children of God, it begins to change the way that we treat one another. It begins to change the way that we see one another. It's that commitment as a family of faith, that understanding of God's grace for us all, that has led us at St. Luke's now to have a commitment to sharing that gospel message of Christ, sharing that love with everyone, because we understand that we are all children of God. And we've had that commitment to be inviting others into that life-giving relationship with Christ for 132 years now. This Wednesday, April the 28th, we're going to be celebrating our 132nd anniversary as a family of faith. 132 years ago, April the 28th of 1889, it was the very first Sunday after the Oklahoma land run that a group of pioneers came together in what would become downtown Oklahoma City they would raise a white flag and sound a bugle and they would call people together for a church service. And that would be the beginnings of St. Luke's. And from our very earliest days, we have always understood as a family of faith that we have a commitment to share Christ, to invite others to experience that love of God that God wants to share with us all. It was the very first minister of St. Luke's. His name was W.P. Shaw. Reverend Shaw was the first pastor of St. Luke's, and he was here for just a few months in those early days in 1889. Reverend Shaw was known that anytime somebody new would arrive into town, he would always be there to greet them, to welcome them to Oklahoma City. He would help them unload their wagon and get set up and settled in their new home or help them pitch their tent or whatever the case might be. And then after he was done helping them get settled, he would invite them to come to church, to come to worship on a Sunday. Now, Reverend W.P. Shaw, he stood at six feet, seven inches tall. 
He often wore a top hat that made him look like he was about seven feet tall. Now, 132 years ago, people weren't as tall back then as they are today. Most people were about five foot six inches tall. And here you had Reverend W.P. Shaw standing six foot seven, looking like he was seven feet tall, a giant of a man. And he would be there to welcome you as you came into town. He would unload your wagon, get you set up. And then with his deep, booming voice, he would invite you to come to church. And you know it's amazing how many people came? We don't know if they came because they were invited or whether they were intimidated by the man. But they came. And we've always had that spirit at St. Luke's that we understand our commitment to share that message of God's love with everybody, to invite all to come and experience that life-giving relationship with Christ. Or you can look ahead a few years. It was in the late 1800s that there was a lady named Susie Ray. Susie Ray had moved into town, and there was a group of ladies from St. Luke's that were there to greet her, to welcome her to Oklahoma City. And they said, we know that we understand that you are a Methodist, So we want to invite you to come to church on Sunday. Well, Susie Ray saw them and she thought, how do they know that I'm Methodist? But she said, well, you're right. I am Methodist and I'm a Democrat. She said, but my husband, well, he's Baptist and he's a Republican. And they said, well, that's okay. He's welcome to come too. And so Susie Ray and her husband came to St. Luke's and they joined the family of faith. Or you look ahead a couple years after that, and it was Judge Edgar Vaught who moved into town. He came a little bit before his wife and the rest of his family to help get things settled and ready for them. When he came to a town, he was invited to come to St. Luke's. He came by himself on that very first Sunday that he was here. And on that first Sunday, he fell in love so much with the congregation and the people here that he decided that day he was going to join St. Luke's, and he signed up his entire family to be members of St. Luke's. You can imagine his wife's surprise when she arrived into town to find out that she was already a member of a church, much less that it was a Methodist church because she was Presbyterian. It was a good thing that when she came to St. Luke's, she too fell in love with the people. They decided to stay and become members of our church, and they were prominent leaders in our family of faith for decades. Now, we have always seen as a family of faith from our very earliest days that it doesn't matter our background where we come from, whether we are Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian, whether we are Democrat or Republican, that God's love is for us all. And we have an opportunity to share that message of God's grace and invite everybody to experience that life-giving relationship. If you fast forward a few more decades, it was in 1951 that Reverend John Peters was serving as an interim pastor here at St. Luke's. He was here for just a few months, and one Sunday morning, he preached a sermon called, Let's Deal with the Basic Issues. And he talked about how there are people on the other side of the world that don't have the basic needs of life. And that as people of faith, we understand that we are all God's children, and that we have a responsibility to one another, not just to those that are in our own backyard, but we have a responsibility to everybody, because we know that we're all God's children. Well, after the service was over, people came up to Reverend Peters in the narthex and they said, you're exactly right. What do we need to do about this? How do we go about solving this? And it was out of that that the people of St. Luke's came together and they formed the organization World Neighbors. And for nearly 70 years now, World Neighbors has been out in hundreds of countries around the world, blessing the lives of millions of people. 
because we understand that we have a commitment to share that message of God's love, to share that message of God's grace, because we know that we are all God's children. It was just about a month ago that, that my car was in the shop getting its oil changed and having a little bit of work done on it. I had some meetings back at the, the church office, and so I had ordered an Uber to take me back over to the church while my car was getting work done. I got in the Uber, and we started talking with my Uber driver, just visiting about different things, and he said, well, where am I taking you? I said, well, I'm going to St. Luke's United Methodist Church. He said, well, what are you doing there? I said, well, I work there. He said, well, you may not know this, but there was a minister at St. Luke's back in the 1950s, a guy named John Peters. I said, really? He said, yeah, you know, he, he preached this sermon one time. I can't remember what it was called, but, but he preached this sermon and, and talked about how we need to help people around the world with different issues and meeting basic needs. And you may not have known this, but there was an organization that got started from that. It's called World Neighbors. I said, yeah, I know all about John Peters and his sermon. Let's deal with the basic issues and, and World Neighbors and what they're doing. He said, I said, how did you know about World Neighbors? He said, well, back in the 1980s and the 1990s, I worked for World Neighbors for more than 20 years. I lived down in South America working for World Neighbors to help teach farming practices and sustainability the importance of clean water and medicine. Here was this man that I met in an Uber one day whose life had been blessed because the people of St. Luke's had dreamed decades before and understood that we are all God's children. And they started World Neighbors. And then he had gone out to the other side of the world to bless the lives of others. The ripple effects that have gone out because we know that good news that we are all children of God. The ripple effects that have happened because we have a commitment as a family of faith to share the message of God's love with everybody. The ripple effects that have gone out into the world because we have taken seriously this commitment to invite others to experience that life-giving relationship with Christ. That whether it's right here in our own backyard or whether it's on the other side of the world, we know that we are all children of God. And as Charles Wesley would say, believe, for you, the Savior has died. For us all, we have received the gift of God's grace. And so second, Charles Wesley would make that statement, for me, the Savior has died. It was a reminder for Charles Wesley that we have received the gift of God's grace. Sometimes it's easy to believe that God's love is for everybody else out there, but not for us, because we know our past. We know our mistakes. We know the things that we have done or the things that we haven't done. We know our doubts and our questions and our fears and our failures. And because we know ourselves, it's easy to believe that God loves everybody else, but how could God possibly love me? For Charles Wesley, it was the reminder from his own experience that in spite of our failures and our shortcomings, God still loves even me. When Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, he actually wrote it in 1739, one year after his conversion experience. He wrote this hymn for the occasion of the anniversary of his conversion, 
But it wasn't just for himself. He wanted this to be a hymn for all of us to be able to sing and to remember our experience of God's grace. In fact, the original title of the hymn was For the Occasion of One's Anniversary of Their Conversion. Not a very catchy title. Maybe that's why they changed it to Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. But that's what Charles Wesley wanted it to be. He wanted it to be something that we could come back to and sing often as a reminder that God's love is for all people, but God's love is also for me. In spite of my past, in spite of my fears and my failures, my doubts and my questions, God's love is still for me. Because Charles Wesley knew that from time to time, even if we have heard that good news of God's grace before, we all need to be reminded of it. We all have those times where we feel close to God and we experience the gift of God's grace. And we're all going to have those times where we feel distant from God. We're all going to have those times where we have doubts and questions and fears. And we're going to wonder how God could possibly love us. And in those moments, we come back and we sing this hymn and we're reminded that for me, the Savior died. It is that reminder that fills us up. It's that experience of God's love for us that gives us the strength that we need to face life and whatever comes our way in our world. It's that experience of God's love for us that equips us to be the people that God has called us to be to go back out into the world to share that good news of God's love. You know, it was this past week on Monday that we looked back and we had the anniversary of the the Murrah Building bombing here in Oklahoma City. April the 19th, 1995. A day that would change our community forever. Change our world forever. The bombing happened here in downtown Oklahoma City and it rocked the entire downtown area. In the immediate aftermath of it, nobody quite knew exactly what had happened, what was going on. People were trying to find out information about what had taken place. People started scrambling to see what can we do to help. St. Luke's was designated as a Red Cross shelter in those days. We were a place that in the event of an emergency or a disaster, that people could come to find help, to find shelter. Well, pretty immediately, we were listed as the place where people were supposed to call or go to get information about their family members who had been downtown. There was so much confusion and chaos and nobody had answers. You didn't really have cell phones back in those days. People couldn't just call their family members to see if they were okay or what had happened to them. So people started coming up to St. Luke's and calling in to get information about their family. Well, it was the members of our family of faith who came together to see what can we do to respond, to be there for the needs It was people like our Builder Sunday School class. People like Carol and Marilyn Johnson, who are now both in the kingdom of heaven, who came together to say, what can we do to help? You know, in those days, there was just one phone line coming into the church. The phone would only ring at one place. Of course, as many people as were calling in now from all around the world trying to get information, we couldn't answer the phone fast enough. So they figured out how to break the phone line up into six different phones. It's pretty amazing technology back in those days. So the phone could ring at all six locations at the same time. And the members of our family of faith came together and figured out how to put together this rotation where there would be three people at every phone, one person to answer the phone, another person who could be taking down the notes or the questions and then running to go and get the answers and work the problem. 
and then the third person who would take their spot and start taking down the notes and the questions from the next caller. We had this going at six different phones, three volunteers at every phone, and we were doing this around the clock. The calls were coming in 24-7 as fast as we could answer them for those first several days. We were there for every single person to answer their calls, to try to find answers to their questions, to work the problems and respond in any way that we could. It didn't matter where people were from, what their background was, what their beliefs were. We never asked what church they went to. We helped every single person that came and called because we knew that in that moment, we're all children of God and that we need to be there for one another in the darkest of moments to show love and compassion to each other. Well, it was at that same time that people started showing up in our Christian Life Center. Our Christian Life Center had only been built just a couple of years before that. It was still brand new, beautiful carpet in there. Everything was still sparkling and fresh. And now because we were the Red Cross Shelter, you had all of these people who started arriving. People whose homes, apartments, places that they lived had been damaged in the bombing. Or maybe they just couldn't get to their place of residence and they had no place to go. And so they started showing up here at St. Luke's. And now in this brand new Christian Life Center, you had people sleeping on the floors. You had people that were eating everywhere. The carpet, this brand new carpet, was getting uh, completely ruined from all the traffic coming through. You had people hanging their clothes from the chandeliers in the fellowship hall. And you know, never once did anybody from St. Luke's ever come through and, and express frustration or be upset about what was going on in this brand new building. Because we knew that in that moment, we have to be there for one another, to share God's love, to be reminded of the gift of compassion. Well, as people started arriving, there was one man in particular named James that arrived. James had been staying downtown at the YMCA. When he got here to St. Luke's, he was standing in the back of the Christian Life Center with Marsha Long. Marsha was standing there visiting with James, and he was telling her the story from his perspective how he had been there in the YMCA right next to the Murrah, bombing, the Murrah building. And when the explosion went off, nobody knew what had happened. They didn't know if there was going to be a second explosion. They weren't sure if the building was going to come crashing down on them. And so they told everybody, you have 10 minutes to gather up all of your belongings and get out of the building. There was such panic and confusion. Everybody started gathering up their things and throwing it into bags, getting out of the building as fast as they could. And they started bringing everybody here to St. Luke's. When James arrived here, he was standing there talking with Marcia, and he was holding a brown paper bag. And he was telling her the story of how they had all started running around trying to grab their things. And for the very first time, he opened his bag and realized that it was completely empty. That in the midst of all of the chaos and the confusion and the panic, he hadn't grabbed a single thing and he didn't even realize it. And we were there as a family of faith for James and so many like him to fill up his bag. Not just with food and clothes and the toiletries that they needed, the physical needs, but we were there for James and so many like him to refill their spiritual bag. Because it's in that moment of darkness and tragedy that we all need to be reminded of the gift of God's love 
of the light that God shines into the world. That in the midst of the most dark and violent day in our city's history, that God's love still shines forth. And it is for us all. When we come to experience that gift of God's love, whatever we go through in life, we will all experience tragedy and loss, grief and despair. But it is our experience of God's love that fills our bag so that we have the strength to face life unafraid. Whatever comes our way, we know that we have the gift of God's love. And from time to time, we find ourselves in those deep, dark moments holding an empty bag. And it's in those moments that we need to be there to remind one another that for me, the Savior died. We will all experience doubts, questions, fears, and failures. But it's in those times that we come back to sing that great hymn, Believe, the Savior died for you, for me the Savior died. Charles Wesley wrote the great hymn, And How Can It Be That I Should Gain? And there's this incredible line that he wrote in there that has been now used in worship music through the centuries. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, that in spite of all of my fears and failures, in spite of the fact that I am not worthy and have not earned it, the Savior would die for me? Charles Wesley reminds us all, believe the Savior died for you. And for me, the Savior died. It is our experience of that gift of God's love, our experience of that gift of God's grace for all people that leads us to proclaim, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen. Oh,